Did Trump's hopes for the Durham investigation come true? Well, the report just dropped, and the lead starts right now. Investigating the investigation after three years, millions of dollars, special counsel John Durham finally releases his report into whether the FBI had a legitimate reason to investigate Trump in 2016. So what did he conclude? Plus, a congressman's staffer and a congressman's intern on her first day both attacked today by a man with a metal baseball bat. Details were just getting in from police. And the Florida culture wars continue. This time, a fifth grade teacher says she's being investigated for showing her class a 2022 animated Disney movie rated PG. The alleged defense is this character, Ethan, an animated gay teen character. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with breaking news. The years-long investigation is over, and John Durham, the special counsel investigating whether there was any misconduct by the FBI in the Trump-Russia investigation, just released his findings. For years, as you may recall, Donald Trump and his supporters pinned their hopes on the investigation uh, by the former U.S. attorney for Connecticut. John Durham, later named special counsel by Attorney General Bill Barr. Trump and his allies arguing that Durham would exonerate him and his 2016 campaign and associates from any hint of improper behavior regarding the Russian government's attempts to interfere in the 2016 election. Durham is coming, was the slogan and the meme tweeted by Republican lawmakers uh, and the president's uh, family hinting that Durham would lead to bombshell indictments of those who investigated Trump. Now, the bombshell indictments did not happen. Uh, Durham did get one minor court victory, two court losses. Uh, But President Trump appeared so confident of what Durham would find, he openly uh, pressured the special counsel to release his findings before the 2020 election. Regardless, the report is now here. It has dropped And it might not have produced everything of what some Republicans hoped for. It is, regardless, devastating to the FBI. And to a degree, it does exonerate Donald Trump. Let's bring in CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez. Evan, what exactly did Durham find in this report? Well, Jake, the the bottom line finding from uh, John Durham's four-year investigation is that the FBI moved very quickly to investigate these allegations of connections, of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, and that they did so by ignoring a a lot of uh, evidence that would have led them to drop that altogether. He's saying that uh, they may have had uh, reason to uh, open a preliminary investigation, an assessment, perhaps these are very, very low-level investigations, but certainly what he finds is that there wasn't enough there uh, to, to, uh, to, to support the FBI's decision to open a full-blown investigation of, this, uh, of, of the Trump-Russia ties back in 2016. I'll tell you uh, one part of, of what he writes here. He says uh, that it seems highly likely that at a minimum, confirmation bias played a significant role in the FBI's acceptance of extraordinarily uh, uh, serious allegations derived from uncorroborated informa- information that had not been subjected to the typical exacting analysis uh, that the FBI usually uses. Uh, he goes on to say that the FBI discounted or willfully ignored material information that did not support the narrative of a collusive relationship between Trump and Russia. There's a lot of uh, very sharp criticism here of the former FBI leadership, James Comey, Andy McCabe, who were running the FBI and who oversaw a lot of these, uh, a, lot, a lot of the steps 
that uh, the, uh, the report goes into, Jake. But as you pointed out, bottom line, there are no additional charges. Nobody is bringing charges against Comey or anybody else uh, that the former president, uh, Trump, kept saying uh, he expected them to. Uh, there was uh, a, a former Trump, I'm sorry, a former Clinton campaign outside lawyer who was uh, brought up on charges. He was acquitted. Again, in here, there's a, there's a footnote that points out there's no chargeable crimes against people in the Clinton campaign. Again, something that the, uh, the former president said he expected this investigation to find, Jake. So it's very interesting. First of all, we should note uh, that when President Biden took office, he, uh, there were two, two uh, special counsels, or one U.S. attorney and one special counsel, that he let continue doing their jobs. One was John Durham right. doing this case, and the other one was the U.S. attorney in Delaware investigating Hunter uh, so that is why this was allowed to, to proceed. Um, a couple uh, quotes here from, the, from Durham's report. One, based on the review of Crossfire Hurricane, that's the investigation into Trump and Russia, and related intelligence activities, we conclude that the Justice Department and FBI failed to uphold their important mission of strict fidelity to the law in connection with certain events and activities described in the report. And he says about, quote, cert, about regarding certain personnel intimately involved in the matter, there was a, quote, predisposition to open an investigation into Trump. He, he is basically saying, he's, he's not, th- these are not criminal allegations, but he's saying that this was unprofessional and failed to meet the standards of the Justice Department and the FBI. Jake, uh, the, 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 the stunning thing about this report is that we, frankly, know a lot of this. Um, the, the Inspector General of the Justice Department did a, a 500-page report that came out uh, in late 2019, and that one uh, told us a lot of these findings that Durham is now uh, is now uh, confirming. Frankly, uh, one of the reasons why uh, Durham was brought on board was supposedly to go beyond what the Inspector General of the Justice Department uh, found in in their investigation. And one of the things they were supposed to do was to tell us a lot about what the intelligence community was doing. It turns out uh, they didn't find very much uh, there in, in, in the intelligence community and certainly not to support the suspicions that they had that there was a cabal of, of, of people from the FBI and the intelligence community who were out to get Donald Trump. That appears to have fallen flat as part of this investigation. And so uh, look, there's a lot in here that uh, should make the FBI uh, have to come back and answer some of the more questions, including some of the changes that they say they've made to make sure something like this never happens again. But the bottom line from what you, we see here at the, at the end of a four-year investigation, uh, really there doesn't tell us a hell of a lot more than what we knew uh, you know, a couple years ago when the inspector general took a look at many of these things and came away with 17 trouble, very big troubling uh, findings that they said the FBI needed to fix. Jake. Yeah. So another thing. So Rachel Cohen, who is uh, a spokeswoman, the communications rather, communications director for Mark Warner, uh, who is the chairman of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, she notes, uh, and this is an important, this is important context, that the Senate Intelligence Committee spent three and a half years reviewing millions of documents and interviewing hundreds of witnesses, this is, she writes this on Twitter, right. and concluded that the FBI had ample cause for concern in 2016. Right. And she notes that the, that the committee, the Senate Intelligence Committee at the time, was led uh, by Republicans. She's referring to uh, former North Carolina Senator uh, Richard Burr. 
And, and again, both of these facts can be true at the same time. It is right. possible that the FBI had legitimate cause for concern and is also possible uh, that some individuals in the FBI uh, got ahead over their skis and were not as professional as they should have been. Right, exactly. And one of the things you come away from here in this report, and it was surprising to me to see him say it, uh, because, because you, know, if you remember uh, in 2019, Durham came out with a, a, a very highly unusual uh, statement in which he said he uh, disagreed with a key finding of the inspector general, which said that, you know, there was plenty of reason for the Justice Department for the FBI to investigate the Trump campaign. He said he disagreed with that. In today's report, Durham says that he sees reason for the FBI to at least take a look at some of the initial tips that led to what became Crossfire Hurricane. He's saying that the FBI had reason to investigate, at least preliminarily. What he doesn't see is the reason for a full-blown investigation, uh, according to this report. Jake, one of the interesting, one of the things that stood out to me, uh, if you remember, the former president kept saying that, uh, you know, he, he was going to find evidence of, of, of deep state spying. Well, there is uh, a, a part here that talks about a confidential human source, essentially a spy, who was tasked with going to a Clinton campaign fundraiser. Again, let me repeat that. A Clinton campaign fundraiser because the FBI uh, had gotten some information that somebody was saying that perhaps a foreign government uh, might be expecting some favors from a future Clinton presidency. So there you have it. The FBI was spying on the Clinton campaign, according to John Durham's report. Has the FBI responded at all to the Durham report? They have. The, uh, the, 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 uh, Christopher Ray, the FBI director, put out a statement just a little while ago saying that a lot of the changes that the FBI uh, have, has made uh, will make sure that things like this don't happen again. And, you know, the FBI wants to point out, uh, Jake, that, uh, you know, a lot of the leadership, a lot of the people who were involved in decisions that are, that are in for some very sharp criticism in this report, they're gone right. from the FBI. Right, and the current FBI director was appointed, as we as we note, right. uh, by uh, President Trump. Not that that has stopped him from criticizing Christopher Ray. Evan Perez, thank you so much. Let's bring in former federal sure. prosecutor Ellie Honig and CNN's uh, Sarah, uh, Sarah Murray. So um, here it is, uh, all 300 plus pages. Ellie, uh, the, the bottom line: uh, Durham has found that the FBI, in his view, should never have launched a full blown investigation uh, into relationships uh, or allegations of relationships between Trump. Uh, and his associates in his campaign and the Russian government. Uh, what's your response? Well, Jake, there's no surprise in that conclusion. It was really sort of a foregone conclusion from the start. Let's remember how John Durham came to be special counsel. In the middle of 2019, when Mueller concluded his investigation, Donald Trump was taking to Twitter regularly saying, all caps, investigate the investigators. And shortly thereafter, Bill Barr appointed John Durham to do this investigation. And there was a really important and I think revealing moment. In December of 2019, DOJ's own inspector general came out with a finding that, yes, the FBI made several missteps and Durham seizes on some of these as well. However, there was ample ground to open an investigation. And right away, John Durham came out with a public statement and said, I disagree with that. That was three and change years ago, Jake. So it doesn't mean Durham's findings are valid or invalid, but there's absolutely no surprise that he's come out where he has. Sarah, uh, obviously, uh, nuance is not really a part of uh, Donald Trump's lexicon or, or the political lexicon in general. Um, I assume uh, that Trump and his allies are going to claim 
uh, complete exoneration uh, from this report? You know, this report doesn't refer to the deep state necessarily, but that's not going to stop Donald Trump from saying the deep state was out to get him. You know, we've also seen House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan already come out and say he wants uh, John Durham to testify next week. And look, Republicans, uh, especially Jim Jordan, have made a big deal about trying to investigate what they call the so-called weaponization of the federal government and who they decide to prosecute, how they decide to prosecute. So they're going to use this to fit into their narrative. But frankly, they've also gone out of their way to make the argument that Donald Trump has been uh, unfairly persecuted. I mean, they've talked about that when it comes to the search at Mar-a-Lago, when it comes to tr Trump's retention of documents. So this is more sort of ammunition for them to make the argument that conservatives, that the former president are treated differently under the eyes of justice in this country. I suspect we're going to see and hear a lot more of that, especially from Jim Jordan. Ellie, uh, Durham's investigation uh, landed uh, in terms of the pelts on his wall, it's not particularly impressive. One minor conviction, two losses uh, at trial. Um, would any prosecutor consider that a success in terms of finding criminality uh, in uh, the misdeeds here? Absolutely not, Jake. In terms of criminal prosecutions, this case was an outright bust. It has been going on for four years. And here's the bottom line tally. Two people indicted, went to trial, found not guilty, wrongly charged, acquitted and cleared by a jury. A third person pled guilty and was sentenced to probation, no time in jail. So any way you look at this from a prosecutorial lens, it was a failure and a, a suboptimal, I'll say, use of four years worth of resources. So the conclusion, Sarah, they're pretty, I mean, they're pretty strong. Uh, Durham says they should not have launched, the FBI should not have launched uh, a full-scale investigation into Trump and Russia. He says, uh, he seems to suggest that there was a lot of um, unprofessional behavior at DOJ and the FBI and that people had a predisposition, that's his word, to investigate Trump and to believe the worst and they had different standards. It is also true uh, that there was a lot of smoke, right? I mean, there was that meeting uh, uh, between the, the, the Trump campaign, Kushner and Don Jr. and others having their, that whole thing about like, uh, if it's what you say it is, I'd love, you know, I'd lo I love it, especially later in the summer. Uh, there is, you know, uh, um, Manafort giving polling information to Konstantin Kalimnik. Uh, there is stuff, uh, as the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, communications director points out, that would raise alarms. Well, yeah, I mean, there was also how sort of publicly cozy Donald Trump was when he talked about Putin, when he talked about Russia, that sort of raised red flags for people throughout the campaign. And so I think what you saw here is there, you know, were some legitimate concerns among investigators, both at the Justice Department as well as Hill investigators, including Republicans on Capitol Hill who wanted to look into this. But as you point out, you know, this was done in some ways, you know, you can say it was a sloppy fashion. You could say it was a nefarious fashion when you look at people who may have had, you know, preconceptions or political bias and how they pursued this, that all comes into play. And, and again, it's all going to be used as ammunition on Capitol Hill. All right, uh, Sarah Murray, Ellie Honig, thanks to both of you uh, for joining us for the breaking news. Keep it here for reaction to this report from special counsel John Durham. As it comes in, we'll bring it to you. Plus, frustration on Capitol Hill today from House Speaker Kevin McCarthy as he insists a debt deal needs to happen this week before the U.S. runs out of money at the beginning of June to pay its bills. And... Were military veterans experiencing homelessness kicked out of a New York hotel to make way for migrants? We're going to get both sides of that story next. 
Turning now to the very real threat of an economic catastrophe, we're only 17 days from the deadline when, according to the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, the U.S. government will run out of money to pay its bills. And with that, a possible reception and steep unemployment, big hits to your retirement savings, a pause on Social Security benefits, and on and on. Key negotiators are meeting behind the scenes today, but Speaker Kevin McCarthy says they remain far apart. I appreciate the president finally willing to talk after 97 days, but there is no movement. We're only a couple weeks away. And if you look at the timeline to pass something in the House and pass something in the Senate, you've got to have something done by this weekend. And we are nowhere near any of that. Tomorrow, President Biden is expected to sit down with congressional leaders. And we will tell you more when that happens. In our world lead, the crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border, which is spilling into other major American cities. The mayors of New York City and Chicago and Denver and Washington, D.C. are asking President Biden for a meeting to discuss the surge of migrants to their cities. While he waits for more federal help, New York City Mayor Eric Adams is facing major pushback from leaders in his own state over his plans to relocate migrants to suburbs outside New York City. Here to discuss is Orange County, New York Executive Steve Newhouse. Uh, Mr. Newhouse, thanks so much for joining us. So you're suing Mayor Adams to stop these buses of migrants coming into Orange County. Tell us why you think that's necessary. Uh, Good to see you, Jake. Thanks for having me on. So myself and the county in Rockland County, just south of us, filed a lawsuit last week. And we're trying to get a stop on New York City sending any up here, at least for the time being, because we have really no information on who they are, have they been vetted, how long are they staying, what is their status. Uh, Literally what the city has been doing is just renting hotels and taking them over, turning them into homeless shelters. So in response to complaints about transporting migrants, a spokesman for Mayor Adams' office said that, quote, we need other elected officials around the state and country to do their part, unquote. What what do you make of this argument uh, that, you know, we're all in this, that, that migrants, tens of thousands of them are crossing the border and coming here for various reasons, most of them uh, for a better life and escaping poverty and escaping violence and the, and the rest. And that every, every part of the country needs to do its part. That's what Mayor Adams is saying. I think majority overwhelming of these folks, Jake, are all just doing the same thing our, our, my parents did. They came here for a better lifestyle, the, the American dream. There's just got to be a better plan. Uh, we have a very, uh, there's, the communication's been very lackluster in the, between the, the governor and the mayor. That's, I think, improving over the last couple of days. But I think there's better options. There's other counties that have like empty dormitories, other facilities that could better accommodate these folks. We're in the beautiful Hudson Valley where we have West Point and uh, th- we had the graduation this weekend. They canceled all those reservations, air show, weddings, veterans that you've heard recently have been displaced. So all those type of people have been removed from this hotel to make way for this. And we think there'd be a better plan in place. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty shocking how little planning there's been. Let's, let, let's talk uh, about the story with the, with the, the veterans uh, who are homeless. Um, because you, you, this, this is a story about 20 homeless veterans who were being housed uh, in an Orange County, New York hotel. Uh, and they say, uh, and a local nonprofit, the leader of a local nonprofit says, they were told to leave uh, to make room for migrants. Uh, now, a New York City official tells CNN that this story is not true. Quote, we would never want to push a veteran out of a room they reserved. And it's sad that some have made these false allegations in an attempt to pit our veterans against a vulnerable population like asylum seekers, unquote. Um, Who's telling the truth here? 
I think what happened here, Jake, is you have a hotel that probably wasn't full occupied. It wasn't fully occupied, right? You had New York City come in and said, look, I will take every room for the next up until January 1st. That's how long we, we have them uh, rented that we've seen their, their their records. So anybody that's in there, they canceled. And these veterans were under um, a nonprofit. They, they weren't directly under my care. They were under a nonprofit called YIT. And that's they were given the boot. They were they were since placed at another hotel. So I don't think do I think the city meant to push them out of there? No. But did they want to occupy as many rooms as they could? Yeah. And in the meantime, did they disrupt a lot of people's lives? Yes. So can you just tell us uh, we cover a lot of veterans issues on this on the show. There are a population in this country that does not get the, the, the treatment that they deserve, considering everything they sacrifice for us. Are those 20 veterans OK? Are, are they do they have a new place to stay? Are they are they being taken care of? You, you, they are being taken care of, and you're talking to a veteran himself. I'm, I'm still in the reserves. I'm a commander in the Navy, and uh, we made sure that they were taken care of right away. And actually, the outpouring from the public to donate food to them as well uh, has been really overwhelming. So I think a lot of people are compassionate, even the folks, the immigrants that are sent here and all over the country, there's a lot of people that are angry at the process, but the Americans are generous people and have come out and said, what can we do to help? Yeah. Stephen Newhouse, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Thanks, Jake. And thanks for your thank, serv- you. thank you for your service as well, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you. Ahead, what appeared to look like Twitter's move to possibly interfere in the elections of a major NATO ally. Stay with us. Big story in our world lead, uh, Turkey, home to NATO's second largest army and a key power broker on the edge of the Western and Eastern world. Turkey and the citizens of Turkey may be yearning for change after Sunday's presidential election ended in narrow margins. Strongman president of nine years, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, just got uh, over 49 percent of the vote. His opponent, often dubbed the Gandhi of Turkey, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, got nearly 45 percent. Now, according to a state-run news agency, now, because neither men uh, got the sufficient number needed, it is headed to a runoff at the end of the month. A day before Turkish voters went to the polls, uh, Twitter, according to critics, put its thumbs or wings on the scales. Twitter's official global government affairs account tweeted this. In response to legal process and to ensure Twitter remains available to the people of Turkey, we've taken action to restrict access to some content in Turkey today. CNN media analyst Sarah Fisher is watching this all closely for us. Sarah, uh, Twitter's CEO, Elon Musk, he, he really he came to fore here when it comes to social media, proclaiming himself to be something of a free speech absolutist. How does that square with him giving in to Erdogan's demands and censoring some content? It's a great question, because when he first floated the idea about buying Twitter, folks were pressing him on this, Jake, and he was saying that he's a free speech absolutist, but he would adhere to the local laws and countries in which Twitter exists. And so clearly, this is an example of where those two concepts come to a head. Now, this isn't new. India, other countries have long requested that Twitter and other social media platforms restrict access or block certain accounts, and they have in the past complied with such orders. What's different here, Jake, is that the leaders of those companies at the time didn't push so aggressively to say that they were such free speech absolutists and then get caught flat-footed when they actually had to make a move. And it's also true, like, that the previous ownership of Twitter um, pushed back more, right, when Turkey and Erdogan uh, push for this. I, I remember seeing uh, Twitter saying, "Okay, uh, Twitter is going to go down in some parts of Turkey because we're we're not going to adhere uh, to the to the demands being made by the Erdogan government." 
They have. And, you know, also Twitter used to be a publicly traded company, Jake, and they would put out transparency reports roughly every quarter, which will allow us and the public to see which countries were demanding for tweets to be removed and which countries were not. Now that it's a private company, we don't have any of that visibility, which may be why Elon Musk and his team feel the need to call out in real time when they're getting these requests and what they're doing about it. But the thing that we're all going to be watching is that this could set a precedent under the new Elon Musk Twitter for how he deals with government requests to take down information or block access moving forward. Right. So, I mean, it was to a degree transparent. They, the Twitter did announce that they were doing this at the request of the Turkish government. Have, have Musk or Twitter revealed what content and which accounts Erdogan and his government wanted blocked in Turkey? No, they haven't. And I think that sometimes there's security reasons for doing that. You don't want to have the name of a person or an account or the type of content that is being blocked to be out there publicly. One, because people could game the system and try to test the limits. But then two, other people could be attacked. So I understand why they're not revealing the names of the accounts. But again, if Elon Musk is going to come out as a free speech absolutist, people are going to want a little bit more transparency about why he's going against his own rules. Although he won't be in charge for much longer, right? I mean, he's, he's picked a new CEO uh, and said that he's going to scale back uh, his, his role. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so he selected Linda Yaccarino, who's one of the biggest names in the advertising industry. She comes from over a decade at NBC Universal. This is a very strategic pick for Elon Musk. Yaccarino actually has the trust of most major advertisers, which is something that Twitter really needs right now. You've seen analyst reports that have marked down the company's value, in large part because advertisers are fleeing the platform, worried about brand safety. Yaccarino, one would hope, is going to bring back some of that trust. But of course, Jake, the big question is, how much autonomy and control is she really going to have. Elon Musk isn't fully exiting the company. He says he will remain chief technology officer. All right, Sarah Fisher, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Coming up next, a Florida teacher who says she's under investigation for showing a recent Disney movie to fifth graders. Uh, And it seems to be, the problem seems to be that the film included an animated gay teenage character. Uh, The teacher will tell us about the, the steps she says she took to try to avoid this kind of fallout. And we're back with our national lead and a mass shooting in New Mexico. At least three people killed, two police officers injured. This is in northern New Mexico. Police say multiple officers were involved in the shooting. Let's get right to CNN's Camila Bernal. Uh, Camila, tell us what happened. Hey, Jake. So there are very limited details here in terms of what exactly happened, but authorities are saying what you mentioned, three people dead and at least two officers that were injured in this shooting. Authorities saying there were multiple officers that were here and of those uh, officers that were responding to this active shooter, Two of them were injured. One of them was with the Farmington Police Department. The other one was with the New Mexico Police Department. We were told they were taken to the hospital. And those two officers are in stable condition at the moment. Now, officials also saying that they essentially confronted the shooter and killed him at the scene. Now, we do not have information in terms of his his or her identity. uh, But they do say that there is no longer a threat in this community. They're also saying that they do not believe there is a second suspect in this case. There were at least four schools that went on emergency lockdown. That lockdown has been lifted. So again, there is no longer a threat in this area, Jake. All right, Camila Bernal, thank you so much. Coming up, this is Disney's PG-rated movie, Strange World. In addition to a a zany and heartwarming story, which you might expect from an animated film, it also features a a gay teen romance. Uh, It is rated PG. And now a fifth grade teacher says she's under investigation by the Florida Department of Education 
after she showed the film to her students. Uh, as CNN's Isabel Rosales reports for us, the complaint is related uh, to the controversial legislation that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed, early, uh, signed last year. First-year teacher, first year Florida teacher Jenna Barbie is under fire for showing her fifth-grade class a Disney movie, Strange World. Hey, Diazo. I didn't see you there. Her intent, she says, was to teach the class about the environment. The film features a family of explorers banding together to navigate the world. So I thought that, that was such a beautiful message to send to my kids, along with working together, chasing your dreams, compassion. Instead, it led to the ire of a school board member, Shannon Rodriguez, also a parent of one of Barbie's students. I'm not going to stand by and allow this minority to infiltrate our schools. God did put me here. And Barbie says that triggered an investigation from the Florida Department of Education. Barbie showed CNN this letter she says is from the state, saying, This office has determined an investigation is warranted into allegations that you engaged in inappropriate conduct. You must be Diazo. He talks about you all the time. Not all the time. Strange World features a gay character and may violate Florida's Parental Rights and Education Act, signed into law last year by Governor Ron DeSantis. The controversial bill bans certain instruction about sexual orientation and gender identity in classrooms. Hernando County Schools sent this announcement home to parents. While not the main plot of the movie, parts of the story involves a male character having and expressing feelings for another male character. In the future, this movie will not be shown. The school district confirmed to CNN the state is investigating Barbie. Rodriguez claimed Barbie broke school policy because she did not get the specific movie approved by school administration. It is not a teacher's job to impose their beliefs upon a child. Religious, sexual orientation, gender identity, any of the above. But allowing movies such as this assist teachers in opening a door, and please hear me, They assist teachers in opening a door for conversations that have no place in our classrooms. Barbie insists she did follow the rules, telling CNN every child had a previously signed permission slip from their parent, approving for PG movies to be shown in the classroom. Nobody had a process in place where individual movies got approved. Now that I had the situation happen, there's a whole process in place where you have to get every single movie approved with a letter to admin to, to the parent to back. Teachers who violate the Florida Parental Rights Bill can be suspended or have their teaching licenses revoked. I don't want them to terminate me right now. And Jake, we did get a response response from the Florida Department of Education, who says that an uh, investigator will review that complaint, also saying that an attorney will advise the commissioner on the next steps to be taken here. Also adding, quote, I understand that the individual in question has discussed her case publicly. However, we will not allow politics and media pressure to dictate our process. CNN has also reached out to that school board member, Shannon Rodriguez, for comment. We have not heard back. All right, Isabel Rosales, thank you so much. Coming up next, when fiction resembles reality, how close did that new episode of Succession come to the very real 2020 election night? I'm going to speak with two uh, political experts who consulted on the script. And our pop culture lead, spoiler alert, kind of, without going into too much detail, last night's episode of Succession on our sister channel, HBO Max, told a story involving political pressure on a conservative cable news network's decision desk during a presidential election. Every vote must be counted. This is about the future of the country. False flag. You can't just say false flag every time you don't. 
Read me something. <sighs> the episode titled America Decides takes place on a close election night where the Roy family, not America, actually decides whether to make a premature call to throw, at the very least, momentum to their favored candidate who is the conservative in the race. Now, given the text messages that we all saw in Dominion's defamation lawsuit against Fox, where supposedly neutral anchors discussed leaning on the decision desk because of political pressures, it might have seemed rather chilling to you instead of entertaining. With me now, Eric Schultz, former deputy press secretary in the Obama White House, and Ben Ginsburg, a former attorney for President George W. Bush and Mitt Romney and former RNC general counsel. Um, both were political consultants for succession. Well, first of all, uh, congratulations on being part of such a cool show. Um, uh, ben, let me start with you because the episode is eerily similar, even though I think you guys taped it months ahead uh, from some of the things we learned in court material from Dominion's lawsuit against Fox. Um, top anchors, uh, talent, Fox chairman Rupert Murdoch endorsing lies to keep viewers around. And, and, and we've learned about uh, claims of pressure on the, on the decision desk. Uh, were you surprised when all this, the news stories about Dominion <laughs> came out after you had consulted on this, on this drama? Yeah, is it art limit, imitating life or life imitating art? Um, yeah, it was a little bit um, chilling about how eerily similar the the whole thing was. I mean, the personalities involved, the pressures on a news organization where I came from, which was campaigns and how they would react in the moment and what they might be able to depend on from a news organization. Yeah, it was really quite something. Yeah. And I have to say, like, I, I wouldn't even know how to lean on a decision desk here at CNN. I mean, like, I don't even know who's there. There's a there's a big firewall, but that's not what we saw last night uh, on HBO Max uh, on the fictional ATN network. And Eric, it's not uh, it's not what we saw in the Dominion uh, text. So there's a moment in the episode where 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 ATN calls a state, even though there's not going to be a clear winner in that state that night, and then they stick with the decision. Uh, it seemed very similar. Um, to what we saw uh, and, and, uh, in 2020. And, and according to the book, The Divider, written by Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, Fox anchor Brett Baer wrote in an email to Fox President Jay Loss about the call Fox made for Arizona for Biden. He said, quote, it's hurting us. The sooner we pull it, even if it gives us major egg and we put it back in his column, the better we are, in my opinion, unquote. We should note that Arizona was never in Trump's column. So putting it back in Trump's column makes no sense. And then according to the Daily Beast, there was a different exchange between Tucker Carlson and Brett Baer, and where Baer wrote, quote, I have pressed them about the decision desk to slow, and I think they will slow walk Nevada. Just to be clear, Eric, you didn't know of any of this when you and the writers at Succession were talking, were, were doing this episode about political pressure on the decision desk? Yes, I think that uh, we've known for a while that the, the writers on this show are brilliant, they're funny, they're creative, and now we know they're eerily prescient. I think that uh, we started working on this show last spring, um, and obviously the revelations, the latest revelations about Fox and Dominion came out much more recently. But I think that you are right, that we're, the writers are always looking for real-life analogs to, uh, to sort of play off of, and obviously Fox's call for Arizona into... Uh, in 2020, put them out on a ledge. Uh, a lot of the other networks were not willing to go there at that point. But what that did is that boxed them in from calling other states. 
because then they would have been the first network to have announced President-elect Joe Biden. And so the writers, I think, in this show wanted to turn that on its head and sort of play with if they weren't willing to go out there and, in fact, reverse their motives, what that would look like. And, and, and Ben, I mean, this is, this is a nightmare scenario of what I imagine somebody like you or somebody like Eric imagine go, goes on. The, the truth is most networks, and I work, used to work at ABC and now I work at CNN, have a complete firewall where there are just statisticians and experts talking about whether or not to make the call based on the math, not based on the politics. But boy, uh, you got it right on ATN because that really seems like that was going on behind the scenes at Fox. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I sort of flash back to the experience of 2000 in Florida, where, as you'll recall, because you wrote the book, Jake, yeah. Um, the calls were made early in the evening that Al Gore had won Florida, yet Carl Rove and the folks in Austin realized that those numbers were wrong. They called in to Fox or to the networks and uh, the decision desks and showed them why the call was wrong. So it's not that there is zero contact between campaigns and news organizations. What was show- so shocking about this one is that no organization would make a call like this with that many outstanding votes. Yeah. Well, anyway, congratulations, and it's great to have you guys uh, here. Uh, Ben Ginsburg, Eric Schultz, thanks so much. Thanks. Coming up, new, new reaction to that major report from special counsel John Durham, finding that the FBI, in his view, had no reason to open up a full investigation into former president or then candidate Donald Trump uh, and Russia. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, new trouble for NBA star John Morant. The Memphis Grizzlies suspended him again after he was seen in an Instagram live video with a gun again. Plus, the devastating report about the FBI, Donald Trump, Russia, and the 2016 election. The findings in the 300-page plus uh, Durham report. And leading this hour, uh, we've seen a rash of political violence in the U.S. in recent years. There's the uh, insurrection on Capitol Hill, obviously. Uh, A man arrested outside the home of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh attempted to carry out an uh, assassination attempt. Uh, Paul Pelosi, the husband of then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, had his head smashed with a hammer by an intruder at their California home. All of this seemingly incited by political reasons. And today we've seen another politically motivated, motivated attack. Two congressional staffers at the Virginia office of Democratic Congressman Jerry Connolly were attacked by an assailant with a metal baseball bat. The congressman says the attacker entered the office and asked for him before wielding the bat against his staff. CNN's Jessica Schneider is in Fairfax, Virginia, outside Congressman Connolly's office. Jessica, uh, are are these young people okay? And what more do we know about the suspect and his motive? Yeah, they seem to be okay, Jake. They were taken to the hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. But as for the suspect, our John Miller is actually reporting that this suspect was, in fact, known to Congress, Congressman Connolly's office. That's according to a law enforcement source. So all of this happening just before 11 a.m., just inside the district offices here. We're in Fairfax, Virginia, just about 20 miles outside Washington, D.C. Now, police have identified this suspect as 49-year-old Juan Qua Tran Pham. They say that he entered the office and then struck two staffers with a metal bat. One staffer was a senior aide struck in the head. The other one, an intern, it was actually her first day on the job. 
Now, our Capitol Hill team actually did talk to Congressman Connolly on the phone. He says that this attacker really went on a rampage, smashing some of the windows inside in the conference room, also breaking computers. Here's more from the Fairfax City Police Sergeant. You could absolutely um, tell that the people inside were scared. They were hiding. Um, I mean, someone swinging a bat around, I mean, I would be scared as well. So this suspect is now being held without bond. He's facing two charges. Congressman Connolly basically said that he went on a, a rage inside the office. Congressman Connolly releasing a statement saying in part, the thought that someone would take advantage of my staff's accessibility to commit an act of violence is unconscionable and devastating. And what's interesting here, Jake, is that the U.S. Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger, he testified just last month saying about talking about this increased threat to lawmakers. In fact, he says in the past six years, the threat has increased 400 percent. So today we're seeing this attack at this district office of Democratic Congressman Jerry Connolly. Two staffers struck with a metal bat. The suspect, though, in custody, but definitely a lot of concern tonight. Jake? Jessica Snyder in Fairfax, Virginia. Thank you so much. Uh, another major story we're following tonight, Special Counsel John Durham finally released his report finding that the FBI, in his view, should have never launched a full investigation uh, into possible connections between Donald Trump, his campaign, his advisors and, and uh, allies, and Russia during the 2016 election. Let's bring in CNN senior justice correspondent Evan President. Evan, uh, this report, uh, it's more than 300 uh, pages uh, long. He spent about four years on it. Uh, what else did he have to find? Well, Jake, the bottom line that John Durham finds is that, uh, you know, there was reason for the FBI to at least do some preliminary investigations, some uh, lower level types of investigations. Uh, but he uh, repeatedly says that he doesn't believe that the FBI took into account a lot of uh, information that was that they had in their possession. That was exculpatory. That would have, that would have been exculpatory. Yeah. That would yeah. have explained some of their suspicions that they have had about Donald Trump, about some of the people uh, surrounding his campaign. Of course, we know that, you know, there was plenty of suspicion, in part because the former president brought on a, uh, a person in Paul Manafort as his campaign chairman who was deeply indebted to a Russian oligarch, somebody who was very close to the Kremlin. That is just one of the many uh, points of da data points that the FBI was following up on in why they did this investigation. And the bottom line, he says, is that, uh, you know, the, the evidence gathered in the multiple exhaustive and costly federal investigations of these matters, including the, the instant investigation, neither U.S. law enforcement nor the intelligence community appears to have possessed any actual evidence of collusion in their holdings uh, at the commencement of the, uh, the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. He's saying, look, he spent four years looking at this. He investigated a lot of different things. The FBI made a lot of mistakes. I'll read you just a statement right now we just got from, uh, from FBI uh, Director Chris Ray, who says that there's made, they've made a lot of reforms at the FBI. And he says, had these reforms been in place in 2016, the missteps identified in this report could have been prevented. And uh, he notes that a lot of this, uh, th this, these mistakes happened uh, before Chris Ray became FBI director. A lot of people who follow uh, law enforcement might not be surprised uh, that in general, sometimes there is an overzealousness right. and, and an effort to... Confirmation to, bias is what Durham calls it. Yeah, confirmation bias. Not it, political bias. It doesn't only happen with presidential candidates and presidents, though. It happens with, you know... To the little guys. To the little guys on the street. Right. And they don't get uh, four-year, multi-million dollar investigations to exonerate them. Right. But 
I'm, you know, it's good to have accountability. Evan Perez, thanks so much. Let's bring in uh, Adam Kinzinger, former Republican congressman from Illinois. Uh, let's start with your reaction to the to the Durham report on on first blush. I mean, there's nothing, no, no criminality uh, that he found, uh, but pretty damning for the FBI. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think you guys hit it on the head when you talked about confirmation bias. I mean, we went into 2016. This is the first presidential candidate, at least in my lifetime, that had expressed sympathy for Vladimir Putin. You had the Paul Manafort issues. You had, remember, at the Republican uh, convention, they pulled out support for Ukraine out of the platform there. So I think a lot of people were looking, going, what's going on here? And including myself, we had some real concerns with you know the sympathy that the former president frankly still has for Vladimir Putin. But that shouldn't govern what the FBI does. The FBI should not allow their either bias on that or whatever to come to fruition. And hopefully uh, this report by the Independent Council will change things at the FBI. Hopefully some stuff has already been implemented. We want to make sure, no matter if somebody's on the left, right, or in the center, that everybody, and by the way, this includes the former president on January 6th, everybody is treated equal under the law. Yeah, I mean, when the, when the text messages came out between Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, Uh, It was pretty shocking, not that two people in law enforcement would not like Donald Trump, uh, but that they were part of the investigation. Uh, And it seems that that uh, their emotions, they they weren't able to even control the fact that they were saying very inappropriate things about somebody that they were investigating. Yeah. And I think that was pretty damning. You know, again, I mean, we're not asking law enforcement or even DOJ officials to not have a political opinion. You get to vote every couple of years and, you know, that's your duty as a citizen. It's good that they do. But when it comes to the enforcement of the law, when it comes to whether you should have. And again, when you launch an investigation on a presidential campaign, that's not a small feat. That's a big deal. And that has real potential to uh, to disrupt politics as we've seen it really has. I mean, a lot of folks on the uh, in the Trump camp have been claiming that this has been a witch hunt. I don't think this actually rises to the level of witch hunt, but this today kind of gives them a little credence on that. I think, you know, this, uh, this report appears to be, I haven't read the 300 pages, but appears to be kind of in the middle ground between it. It wasn't truly a witch hunt, but also there were some real issues here. So I think each side can kind of take what they want from it. But I hope we take from this, everybody needs to be treated equally under the law, whether you agree with a person's politics or not, because this is America and it's the only thing that keeps democracy upright and surviving is that knowledge that we all get treated equal. Yeah, so people, we should remind people, the Mueller investigation, uh, it outlined a number of contacts and, and issues uh, between uh, Trump and his allies and, and Russia uh, that were odd uh, but did not conclude that there was a conspiracy that a prosecutable conspiracy. Um, but they yeah, did. But they. But they did. They, they, they did note a number of attempts to uh, interfere and obstruct justice. Yeah, that's right. And and so that whole thing. I mean, obviously, uh, William Barr came out and kind of biased everybody to what that was going to say. But what it really said is, I'm not going to make. Mueller said, I'm not going to make a prosecutorial decision. That's for Congress. Uh, obviously Congress then took it and put it through the political machine of, you know, whose side are you on? But yeah, it showed some real concerns. Now it didn't necessarily show that it rose to the level of the former president having directed, you know, corrupt activities with regards to Russia. Uh, but certainly, uh, there was some inappropriate stuff there. So I think we should take from both this independent council report, the Mueller report is who, no matter who you are, no matter what your politics, when you run for president, 
look at American interests first. And when you're in DOJ or law enforcement, make sure that everybody is treated equally regardless of their political opinion. Yeah, we should remind people also that, that the, the Mueller investigation did lead to a number of, of uh, charges and convictions, including Manafort, uh, for, for tax fraud, I believe. Um, and then a number of Russian nationals, because there was an attempt by uh, Russian nationals and the Russian government to interfere uh, in the election. We should note, uh, Donald Trump just responded on his social media app, Truth Social. He said, quote, wow, after extensive research, special counsel John Durham concludes the FBI never should have launched the Trump-Russia probe. In other words, the American public was scammed, just as it is being scammed right now by those who don't want to see greatness for America. Okay, I'm, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly what that means, but, but he, he, I mean, he, he at least... Uh, he described it accurately uh, that that uh, the, that that Durham concluded there shouldn't have been a full-throated investigation. And just for people who don't understand the difference between kind of like a, a a less serious investigation as opposed to a big one, for instance, you can't like go and pursue uh, a FISA warrant under the kind of level of investigation that John Durham seems to be saying uh, would have been appropriate as opposed to the the, the major investigation. Yeah, I mean, that's right. And look, it, it, the president's going to claim victory here. I don't think it's necessarily a huge victory for him. And it certainly doesn't translate to some of the other concerns we have about his sympathy for Russia, but he'll take it for what he wants to take it. Yeah. Former Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger. Thank you so much, sir. Good to see you as always. Yeah, you too. Coming up, the head of a Russian mercenary group denying a report that he offered to leak the location of Russian troops to Ukraine. We're talking to the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine next. Then, how a cyber attack stopped the presses at a major U.S. newspaper. In our world, the head of the Russian mercenary Wagner Group is denying an explosive new report in the Washington Post that he allegedly offered to share intelligence with Ukraine on Russian troop positions. This would be an exchange for Kyiv pulling its troops from the area surrounding the embattled city of Bakhmut. That's where Wagner has taken some heavy losses. CNN's Sam Kiley joins us now live from southeastern Ukraine. And Sam, this report comes from previously unreported leaked U.S. intelligence documents. Tell us more. So it's a very weird story indeed, uh, but essentially it relates to Prigozhin allegedly making contact with the uh, intelligence chiefs in Kyiv. And as you say, offering to uh, reveal uh, to his enemies or to his country's enemies uh, the positions of their troops in return for uh, allowing his people from his mercenary company uh, a, a less, a, to come under less pressure in Bakhmut. Now, this overture, according to these documents, was rejected by the Ukrainians who, funnily enough, didn't trust the leader of a mercenary organization that is on the verge of being designated a terrorist organization by uh, the French parliament, among others. Uh, but at the same time, uh, he also has rejected this uh, allegation, saying that uh, this, the meeting that was supposed to bring this about had occurred between himself and the Ukrainian intelligence officers in somewhere in Africa. Uh, he's claiming that he has never actually set foot in Africa during the whole period of the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine. So couldn't have been attending that meeting. It's a very murky story indeed. Uh, there is no proof positive one way or the other. This is U.S. intelligence that's, that's been unverified. Uh, but I think it's also partly potentially now, even if it wasn't designed as such, playing into the psychological operations ahead of what is 
assumed to be a major summer offensive from the Ukrainians sowing discord, and this certainly does just that in the ranks of the Russians. The Russian government has dismissed this uh, as a hoax, uh, but they won't entirely do so privately. Jake. All right, Sam Kiley in Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Joining us now is former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich. She's the author of the book uh, Lessons from the Edge, a memoir. It is now out in paperback. We had her when it came out in hardback. Uh, always a great book. Very recommended, highly recommended. Um, so what is your reaction to this explosive reporting from the Post that the, the head of the Wagner Group, uh, Prigozhin, uh, offered to give Ukraine the location of Russian troops? Do you believe it? It's, it's really hard to know, Jake. I mean, um, you know, just when you think you can't be surprised anymore by things coming out of Russia, you can be surprised. Um, but clearly, I mean, there has been, um, Prigozhin has been on the outs with uh, those in the defense uh, ministry. And, um, you know, why? why is he on the outs with them? I mean, his, his mercenary group is in there. I mean, I hate what they're doing, but they're in there fighting. Yeah, I, I think they're scorpions in a bottle. I mean, they're fighting. You know, presumably they're all on the same side. But they're all, like, trying to advance themselves as well in the eyes of Putin, right? And Putin plays one off against the other. So I think, uh, you know, I think it's a pretty tense situation there. Russia's poured vast (laughs) amounts of resources, obviously, uh, into this war and manpower. um, But they're still struggling. Um, Two senior Russian military officers were killed yesterday in in eastern Ukraine, Russia admitted that uncharacteristically. Mm -hmm. And that comes a day after Kiev (laughs) shot down four Russian military aircraft near the border. Um, how do you think, how much longer do you think Putin can afford to, to wage this war? Well, uh, I think that he, um, you know, he's determined to keep on going. And so um, the price in, in terms of blood and treasure is, is not an obstacle for him, at least not at this point that we can see. Um, Zelensky, the, the president of Ukraine, is he's touring Europe uh, right now trying to get more mm-hmm. weapons, uh, heavy weaponry especially, uh, as well as uh, financial aid and other, uh, other assistance for his fight. Um, today, the U.K. promised to train Ukrainian fighter pilots but they're not giving them the actual uh, planes. Um, do you think that Europe is doing enough to help Ukraine? I think Europe is doing a lot, uh, just as the U.S. is doing even more. Um, but, but we need to keep on giving Ukraine more and more quickly so that Ukraine can win. I mean, that's important for Ukraine, obviously, for uh, uh, existential issues, but it's also important for the West. If you were president right now, <laughs> I'm, I'm making you president right now, hypothetically, what would you do for Ukraine that we're not doing? Oh, that's a really good question because, um, you know, so I just levied this criticism. But um, I think partly what we're seeing is a logistical miracle in terms of getting Abrams tanks to Germany this month um, and then on to uh, on to Ukraine. So um, I think the Biden administration and Europe in general are, are uh, and Germany just over the weekend in terms of the three billion dollar package are doing a great job. But we need to do more and more of the same. And looking at other systems as well, um, you know, should we follow the UK lead, for example, with long-range, uh, longer-range uh, missiles? Should we be thinking about fighter fighters and so forth? Um, I think these are all very valid questions. So your book, Lessons from the Edge, uh, among the stories it tells, and it tells a lot, uh, it talks about um, how when you were uh, ambassador to Ukraine uh, during the Trump administration, you were ultimately fired um, uh, after you refused to pledge loyalty to Trump. Uh, you write about that in the book. I, I want to get your reaction to comments uh, that Mr. Trump made about Ukraine last week at the CNN town hall. If I'm president, I will have that war settled in one day, 24 hours. How would you settle that war in one day? Because I'll meet with Putin, I'll meet with Zelensky. 
They both have weaknesses and they both have strengths. And within 24 hours, that war will be settled. It'll be over. It'll be absolutely over. Do you over. want Ukraine to win this war? I don't think in terms of winning and losing. Now, Zelensky uh, responded to that, noting that obviously Russia was at war with Ukraine during all four years that Trump was president. They, they hadn't seized the whole country. They just uh, seized uh, the, some of the, the, the area to the east as well as uh, Crimea. Um, but what, what do you, what do you, how did you take his remarks? Well, I, I think it's Trump being Trump, uh, you know, where he makes statements with, that, that aren't necessarily tethered to reality. Yeah. He also said at one point that he and uh, Putin had talked about uh, Putin invading Ukraine. And, and uh, do you know anything about that? No, I don't know anything about that. Yeah, who knows if it's true or not. I'd, I'd love to know more. Uh, former Ambassador Marie Ivanovich, uh, author of the great book Lessons from the Edge, a memoir now out uh, in uh, paperback. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Good thank to you. see you. Thanks. Coming up after a busy weekend in Iowa, are Republican voters getting their first glimpse of DeSantis 2.0? In our 2024 lead, fresh off his weekend in Iowa, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is back in the Sunshine State and signing a new law. This one impacting Florida's public colleges. The Republican governor today banned funding for diversity, equity, and inclusion programs at all state universities and colleges. DeSantis says those programs promote a liberal agenda and encourage racial divisions. Let's bring in CNN Steve Contorno. Uh, Steve, uh, how is DeSantis explaining this legislation? Jake DeSantis says that colleges and universities have gotten too far from the mission of educating students. And he wants to institute more of a, quote, classical mission of educating kids. And that means getting rid of these kinds of programs. And this law he just signed also bans gender studies. He said, if you want to study that, go to California and go to Berkeley. But in Florida, we're only going to teach the topics that can help you get a job. And he also this bill also gives uh, universities, uh, administrators uh, puts them on notice and gives gives presidents and his political appointees more power in the hiring and firing process of faculty. Uh, and I should note that this bill was signed today at New College, which is a university DeSantis has orchestrated a takeover of sorts. He has put his own people in charge of the board. They have been in charge for about six months and have spent that time pushing out the president, ripping up the curriculum, and reinstituting the school as sort of a, a Hillsdale Central of the South, which is a, a private college uh, in, in Michigan. So this is all part of a broader education agenda uh, that DeSantis has been pushing in this state for the last year. And this comes after a big weekend uh, where he made lots of campaign stops in, in uh, Iowa. That's correct. We saw Governor DeSantis continuing to share the Florida blueprint and all of his political victories in the state, now taking that message to Iowa, making a strong contrast with Donald Trump and presenting himself as someone who makes gets a lot of stuff done and isn't distracted. Listen to how he described President Trump without directly talking about President Trump uh, this weekend. At the end of the day, governing is not about entertaining Governing is not about building a brand or, or, or talking on social media for victory. We must reject the culture of losing that has infected our party in recent years. The time for excuses is over. We got to demonstrate the courage to lead. 
Now, Jake DeSantis ended that trip in Iowa by appearing at a, making an unscheduled visit to a barbecue joint in Des Moines, Iowa, which is right by where Trump was supposed to hold a rally, but had to cancel because of weather. So a bit of a trolling on his campaign part there. All right, Steve Contorno, thank you so much. Uh, my panel's here with me. Uh, now let's discuss. Uh, so, David, uh, you just heard Steve Contorno describing uh, that bill that DeSantis signed. It, it prohibits public colleges in Florida for spending state or federal money on diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion uh, efforts. Um, w- why sign something like that? Well, because it is completely on brand with how he is positioning himself inside the Republican primary, uh, which is this war on woke, as as he says it. He says uh, Florida is where woke comes to die. And so this is a continuation of his, the bet that he's placing, that he can carve out a substantial level of support inside the Republican primary electorate by taking on uh, these cultural issues that he sort of puts under the umbrella of an anti-woke agenda. What do you make of it? Well, it, David is exactly right. But I think when he says comments like if you want to study niche things like critical race theory or women gender studies or African-American studies, look, I went to The Ohio State University, which is not Berkeley. Mm-hmm. It is in the heartland of America. It is a red state now. And I studied African-American studies and women's studies. And part of college is having those opportunities to take courses that aren't a part of a traditional curriculum. I'll also say, though, if uh, Ron DeSantis wants to be president, he needs to really think about what happened beyond just the governor's races in 2022. A lot of things like school board races, um, uh, ballot initiatives did not align with Ron DeSantis's uh, uh, political agenda. And I'll give you an example. In Michigan, in suburban areas and in rural areas, approximately 70 percent of people who subscribe to Ron DeSantis lost their races in 2022. And so if he thinks he can go to someplace like Michigan and win with policies like this as the potential Republican nominee, I think he's mistaken. What's the argument against uh, diversity, equity and inclusion? I understand certainly that some programs might go too far, et cetera. But just the existence of a, an office to make sure that the faculty and the students are serving a diverse student body, a diverse faculty. Why is that inherently bad? So uh, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, a nonpartisan group concerned about free speech, has written that DEI bureaucracies and college campuses have frequently and repeatedly been involved in threats to free speech. Now, they came out with model legislation where they wanted to rein in these offices, but given the track record, I think it is reasonable for somebody who's concerned about that issue to say these organizations just end up taking on this mission that ends up being antithetical to the purpose of a university. Uh, So the governor had uh, seemed uh, from coverage to have a good weekend in Iowa um, doing two scheduled events and stopping by Des Moines uh, where Trump had canceled his event because of the weather. Um, Do you think it was a good weekend for him? Well, clearly it was a, a better weekend than he had had previously in Iowa. There's no doubt about that. And the reporting... Uh, from our team and, and from others is that uh, DeSantis uh, was able with his wife with him to share a little bit more of the personal side than we've seen before. That's a good thing to do when you're before Iowa voters. Uh, the reality is he also, his super PAC rolled out a slew of legislative endorsements, which is always helpful to have uh, when you're running there in Iowa. The, the issue here is 
he's not a fully engaged candidate yet. So when he actually launches his campaign and gets in this race, we'll enter a new phase. So where you make um, some reference to Donald Trump, but clearly not wanting to take him on directly, uh, that calculus will eventually have to change if they're on a debate stage together and, and the contest becomes uh, more engaged. So Ramesh, I mean, he has these... Um implied criticisms of Donald Trump, right? He won't, doesn't mention Donald Trump's name, uh, but he says, uh, for example, this. Florida's getting out of that game. Um, if you want to do things like uh, gender ideology, uh, go to Berkeley, go to some of these other places. Now, that's not the, that's not the, I want the, I want the, the number from number four, question four. Uh, he's talking about the Republican Party uh, and a culture of, of losing. Let's run that bite. 2018, we lost the House, we lost the Senate. 2020, Biden becomes president, or no, excuse me, we lost the Senate in 2020, Biden becomes president, and has done a huge amount of damage, very unpopular in 2022, and we were supposed to have this big red wave, and other than like Florida and Iowa, I didn't see a red wave. So his argument is, I'm a conservative, but I actually win. That's right. And I think that right now there are two problems with that. One, uh, it's not direct enough. And I think once he gets in the race pretty soon after, I think he has to make a more direct attack on President Trump if he wants to actually beat him. The second thing is I do wonder if an electability attack is really going to work against Trump, given that all Republicans were told over and over again in 2016, sometimes by me, Trump can't win, right. and then Trump won. I think that there's a particular kind of a force field that Trump has that protects him against that particular attack. So, um, actually, the, the former President Trump is, is perfectly willing to be direct. Yeah. Uh, and he did an interview with Mark Caputo at the, a new media startup called The Messenger that launched today, uh, in which he said, uh, regarding this criticism from DeSantis, quote, Ron's not a winner because Ron without me wouldn't have won as governor in 2018. If I would have left it alone, he, he would have lost by 30 points or more. He's got no personality, and I don't think he's got a lot of uh, political skill. Now, moving away the, from the personality and political skill part of it, he has a point that his endorsement really helped uh, DeSantis go from trailing the agricultural commissioner, uh, Adam Putnam, in the race for uh, the primary race for governor to beating him. I mean, he, I don't know that that's an argument against him, yep. but but he's right about that. Yeah, and in 2018, it wasn't like he had the margin of victory in his gubernatorial race as he did in 2022. I've often said, though, in 2022, without Trump's endorsement, Florida's politics weren't best situated for Democrats. And so he ran against Charlie Chris, and it wasn't ever really seemed to be a, a close and tight race. So whether you want to call Ron DeSantis a winner or a loser, I'll let Trump decide that. What I'm really interested in is if Ron DeSantis gets into this race, but anybody else also gets into this race, is he going to be able to win enough Republican votes to win a Republican primary to become the nominee? I, I, I want to I get to this thing because DeSantis posted a tweet praising uh, Daniel Penny. Daniel Penny uh, is the former Marine who was arrested uh, on second-degree manslaughter charges uh, after he did that chokehold on, on the homeless man, uh, uh, Jordan Neely, DeSantis tweeted, quote, We must defeat the Soros-funded DAs, stop the left's pro-criminal agenda, and take back the streets for law-abiding citizens. We stand with good Samaritans like Daniel Penny. Let's show this a Marine America's got us back. And then he, he linked to a fundraiser that's now raised more than $2 million uh, uh, for Penny. What do, you, what do you make of that? 
Ron DeSantis's mission here inside the Republican primary, Jake, is to stitch together a difficult coalition to stitch together because he wants to appeal to uh, some of the never Trumpers out there, obviously, as an alternative. He also wants to carve out a huge part of Donald Trump's face. Remember, Donald Trump is winning this race right now, according to most polls. So he needs to dig into some of that. So there's no sort of uh, conservative right wing uh, cause that he's not willing to embrace at the moment as a way to do that. But it may complicate the other part of his coalition building message, which is to get some of those moderate Republicans and independents and some from the never Trump world or some that were with Trump and left him uh, to, to join the fold as well with DeSantis. Th- that to me is the the constant balance we're going to watch Ron DeSantis try to do in this campaign. Yeah, he refused to say uh, when asked that Joe Biden had won the election. He refused to say it. He said something like, Joe Biden is the president. Um, interesting. All right, thanks to all of you. Appreciate it. Coming up, the results of a new study that may be painful for your sweet tooth and for your diet. Stay with us. Politics are now top of mind in the Commonwealth, best known for horses and bourbon. Tomorrow, Kentucky voters head to the polls to decide which Republican candidate will face popular Democratic Governor Andy Beshear. CNN's Eva McKen reports for us from Lexington on what could be one of the biggest bellwether elections of the year as Republicans try to rally behind a single candidate. All right, three, two, one. Republicans in the bluegrass state heading to the polls Tuesday to pick a nominee to take on Democratic Governor Andy Beshear in a race that's testing former President Donald Trump's influence with GOP voters. Kentucky is Trump country. State Attorney General Daniel Cameron, a former staffer for Senator Mitch McConnell and a rising star in the party after his 2020 Republican convention speech. That's why I am voting for Donald Trump for president. Cameron is considered a top contender along with Kelly Craft, who served as Trump's ambassador to Canada and later the United Nations. Thank you very much, Kelly. You're doing fantastically well. But Trump has endorsed Cameron, joining him in a tele-rally Sunday night. I have no doubt he's going to be a fantastic governor. The endorsement resulting in bitter barbs traded between the two candidates. Uh, and then I got the endorsement, and your team has been scrambling ever since. And in TV ads. Only one candidate for governor has been endorsed by President Trump. While Kraft has focused in on Cameron's ties to McConnell. My opponents, career politicians, who'd rather follow than lead. And his handling over the Breonna Taylor case, allowing the Justice Department to investigate Louisville's police department. They failed Kentucky's law enforcement. Kraft, who is the wife of a billionaire coal magnate, has loaned her campaign more than $9 million, while Cameron has raised a total of nearly $1.5 million. They both are cutting each other's throats. That's what I think. And you don't like that? No. No, they're slandering each other. Cameron has focused on a law and order message and would make history as the first black Republican governor elected in the U.S. Why do you think that you are best suited to take on Governor Bashir? We've seen a governor uh, who has sat idly by as the far left has tried to move into our state. We need us to have a governor that says enough and will stand up for the values of Kentucky. Kraft has centered her campaign on culture war clashes. We have to take woke not only out of our education, but out of our government, out of our family, out of our businesses. Agriculture Commissioner Ryan Quarles has focused his campaign on rural areas of Kentucky. Let me be the candidate that unites our state. Hoping to win over voters who may be turned off by Kraft and Cameron's Trump-fueled fight. All politics is local. That's kind of a test here. 
Uh, can you still run a campaign in, in the state uh, talking about local issues, running a very localized campaign and win? Or, or have we entered an era in politics where if you're running for local office, you have to have a position on the Ukraine? And Jake presidential hopeful Vivek Ramaswamy on stage now uh, with Ambassador Kraft. Really the challenge for Ambassador Kraft and all of the candidates is turnout. The Secretary of State's office telling me just 10 to 15 percent of registered Kentuckians, about 3.4 million voters registered in this state, are actually going to turn out and participate in this primary. We've been talking all about the Republicans. Democrat Andy Bashir, he's not facing a competitive primary. Democrats confident he'll win re-election. Jake. All right, Eva McCann, thanks so much. NBA star John Morant suspended again for another Instagram live video involving a gun again. Will the league go further than they did last time? That story is next in our Sports League. Our Sports League now. NBA star John Morant has been suspended by his team for allegedly brandishing a gun on Instagram live again. Over the weekend, another video of the Memphis Grizzlies star went viral. It appeared to show Morant holding a gun while in a car with others. This comes just two months after the league suspended Morant for eight games for a similar incident. He was allegedly seen with a gun at a Denver nightclub before coming back to the court. After serving his initial suspension, he told ESPN this. The gun wasn't mine. It's not who I am. I don't condone any type of violence. I'm going to show everybody who John really is, you know, what I'm about, and, um, you know, change this narrative that, you know, everybody got painted over me. Moran also went to counseling. Here to discuss, sportscaster and CNN contributor Bob Costas. Bob, it's not that complicated. They want to give no. you millions of dollars to play basketball. Mm-hmm. Just stop brandishing guns on Instagram Live. But he, he doesn't seem to be able to do that. Yeah, he's making about $39 million a year on a five-year deal, 23 years old. A terrific player, averaged 27 points the season before the one just ended, and 26 this past season. A tremendous future ahead of him. He's on the verge of messing up his own life, screwing up his team, and doing some sort of irresponsible thing for the league itself. No informed person begrudges athletes tremendous riches. If the market is there for it, fine. But you have a responsibility to yourself, to your team, and to the league. There are many players within the league who are easy to root for. John Morant is making it very difficult to root for him. He said only a few weeks ago or a couple of months ago, whatever it was, that's not who I am. I'm going to prove to people that's not who I am. And instead, here he is right back in the same sort of situation. Uh, Obviously, the gun part, brandishing a gun in an irresponsible fashion, which has nothing to do with the Second Amendment or someone's legitimate and responsible and lawful exercise of that right. But throughout the sports world, there are irresponsible attitudes toward guns. Just Google athletes and guns. It's a litany of folly, criminality, and tragedy. And very little on the other side where you said to yourself, boy, I'm really glad this guy had a gun. And there are aspects of pop culture that glorify brandishing guns. And that influences young people, including young people with lots and lots of money. The first time this happened with John Morant, he had dropped 50 grand the night before at the same strip club in Colorado, I guess near Denver, at nearly dawn when he was brandishing the gun. If he doesn't learn his lesson soon, he's going to send his career swirling down the drain. What do you make of people who say this is a double standard? We see lawmakers, members of Congress posing with guns in their Christmas cards. 
uh, they don't get in trouble, and this is, this is a double standard for an athlete. Well, they're supposedly responsible to the voters who can vote them out if they come to their senses and don't want imbeciles like that uh, representing them. But in this case, uh, Ja and others are under contract to their teams and have a responsibility to the league, so they're answering to a different court, so to say, so to speak. Bob Costas, always great to have you on. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jake. Donald Trump may be the dominant Republican 2024 candidate, but a voice trying to make sure Trump does not win is going to join Wolf Blitzer up next in the Situation Room. Uh, Wolf, who are you going to be talking to? Jake, uh, my guest tonight is going to be the Republican presidential candidate, the former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. He's got a lot to say. We'll get his thoughts on the just-released Durham report on the Trump-Russia investigation, the growing feud between uh, Donald Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis over abortion, as well as his own bid to win the Republican presidential nomination in 2024. We expect the Republican field to grow even more crowded in the coming weeks. All of that coming up, much more right at the top of the hour in the Situation Room. We'll be watching. Can't wait. Uh, About seven and a half minutes, six and a half minutes. Thanks so much, Wolf. Still ahead, the sugar rush you might have, uh, and that it will have you questioning what you put in your coffee. Stay with us. In our health lead now, it turns out artificial sweeteners might not help you lose weight at all, at least not in the long run. A new study from the World Health Organization found using Non-sugar sweeteners such as Splenda, Stevia, or Sweet and Low can actually increase your risk of developing type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular diseases instead of keeping the weight off. The study also showed these sweeteners may cause premature birth for some pregnant women. But sticking to real sugar might not help you lose weight either, the World Health Organization director says. The better way to go is cutting off sugar as well as its substitutes entirely and only eating food with naturally occurring sugar. For our tech lead, Stop the Presses, the great Philadelphia Inquirer newspaper has been hit with a massive disruptive cyber attack, according to the paper. Just days before a key election in the city of more than 1.5 million, Philadelphia's Democratic primary for mayor, journalists and staff have been barred from entering the newspaper's offices through at least Tuesday. Sunday's paper did not go out as planned, and it's unclear when systems will be fully restored, according to the publisher. The Philadelphia Inquirer says it's the greatest disruption to Inquirer publication since the massive blizzard of 1996. Struggling Philadelphia sports fans such as myself might have to now look harder for trusted opinions on why the Sixers didn't win last night. Let's just put it that way. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. Also on Blue Sky if you have the beta. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to the lead once you get your podcasts. All two hours just sitting there like a big delicious slice of Lorenzo's pizza. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He's right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I will see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.